Good morning. Would you turn in your Bibles with me to um, Matthew chapter 18? Matthew chapter 18. We'll be reading uh, verses uh, 15 through 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two to three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? So this morning, Father, we uh, have a, a very heavy passage to work through. Father, it's an important passage when we look at uh, your church and holiness and growth in Christ. When we talk about a church of vital relationships, Father, there is nothing more vital than to be with somebody and to help them through times of struggle in their lives. So, Father, I pray that we would hear this as a call for each of us um, to be self-disciplined in our lives, mutually disciplined with each other, and corporately disciplined uh, in this body. And I pray that you can be glorified in all we do. In Jesus' name, amen. So I uh, got on a flight <clears throat> a couple of weeks ago, probably about three weeks ago, and um, as I was getting uh, through the airport and going to the flight, there was this parent, and these children were going all over the place. They were running, making a mess of things, yelling and screaming, and it was like, uh, it's like, is somebody going to rein these kids in? It's because I, I almost wanted to do so, and and you find that at times when you see an unruly kid, it's not just one unruly kid. What ends up happening is it has a ripple effect um, in a relationship. It's not just one kid. If the kid thinks he can get away with something and the parents haven't done anything about it, then guess what happens? Then another kid se- uh, seems to do the same thing and another, and it has a ripple effect uh, throughout a whole family. And I, I was noticing that. The one child was acting out, and then all of a sudden it was another child and another child, and then it was just bedlam around the area. And in my mind, I'm thinking, will somebody just rein this kid in? I guess in some ways, that's something I want you to think about when it comes to the family of God. Um, Oftentimes, what we find is that when we have one that is unruly, um, one that is acting up, that can have a ripple effect on others. And, and the Bible tells us that it's extremely clear that we need to be there to help and to encourage one another. I was thinking about the fact that um, if I were to ask you, what is the primary goal of us as believers? Why are we here? Um, some may go to a catechism that says the primary purpose of humanity is to glorify God, which is, which is absolutely true. But I believe that if you bring it down to the primary goal of humanity, the primary goal of a Christian human is the idea of holiness. That God wants us to reflect him in what we do and what we say and how we live in the idea of holiness, a purity of life. 
there's a dilemma that happens within churches today that a church that lacks purity, a church that lacks holiness, is a church that is not going to be able to penetrate into the world in a strong and mighty way. The purity within the church will lead to penetration into the world. What we want to be able to do is to show that this church is fundamentally different than the world that is outside. See, if we're ever going to make a difference in the world outside, this church and these individuals must be different in the way that they live. When a church becomes like the world, when a church becomes like what's happening outside, the church is going to lose its ability to attract people to the congregation because we're no different than them. So what the church needs to do is to be able to get to a place where they are different in the fact that we have a word that is different. We need to be able to exposit that word, and I hope you hear that every Sunday here as the three of us open God's word to you. It is not Doug or Tim or James's word. It is God's word to you to transform human lives. Hopefully you don't see entertainment here. That is not why we're here. Hopefully you're seeing the proclamation of the world and not performances that are happening in our lives. Hopefully you're hearing about real theology, deep, lasting theology, not just theatrics. See, what we've done today in our society, unfortunately, is many churches are lowering the standard of holiness in their corporation thinking that they're going to attract people in life. And one of the key elements that causes people to lower that standard of holiness is this idea of church discipline. It's not a fun word to talk about. It's not an easy thing to talk about. But the Bible is very clear that God has laid out a a a discipline that has to be there in life for each of our lives so that we are reflecting God in what we do. There are so many of us here that um, come to church on a Sunday morning and we we put on our Sunday best and we act a certain way here in church and and sad to say, we, we walk out of here and go into the parking lot and get into our cars or in our kitchens or in our bedrooms and we are doing things that are not reflecting God in his holiness, in the way we think, in the way we speak, in the way we act. Years ago, there was this phrase, a Latin phrase, about how we are called to live our lives, and it's quorum deo. Quorum deo is two words, and it means before the face of God. One theologian put it this way, to live quorum deo is to live before the face of God, to live under the authority of God, to the glory of God, and in the presence of God. That each of our lives should be living day by day in the presence of God under his authority and for his honor and glory. But the problem today is this. Far too many of us live in the absence of God. We don't ever think about him. Far too many of us live under authority against God, defying him, failing to follow him. And far too many of us live for our own honor and for our own glory. So I said that if the primary goal of life is holiness, what does holiness mean? Holiness means that we have a habit that our minds are set 
to God. We, we follow the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. We practice this idea of self-denial in my life, that I am seeking brotherly love and faithfulness and purity in my heart. That holiness is coming from this humility that is deep within. It's coming from faithfulness in the activities that I do. Holiness is coming after this spiritual mindedness, that this idea that everything that I do is to be reflecting of God. One writer years ago, J.C. Ryle, said that holiness, practical holiness in life is so important because, one, God commands it. That God commands that every single person in this room, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, be under discipline, discipline of yourself, and mutual discipline so that you can grow in holiness. God commands it. It's not something that, it's not a suggestion. It's not good advice. It is a command of God to grow in holiness. Second, he said that holiness is the purpose for which Christ came into this world. That Christ came into this world primarily to rescue sinners and to bring them into fellowship with him and to conform them to his likeness so that he looks more, that we look more and more like him. That Christ commands that we be holy, that we are, Christ came into this world so that we could be holy. It's, it's evidence that if you are living a holy life, it's evidence that you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, you could take somebody's pulse to see that they're alive, but holiness is taking a pulse of a believer. That as you're growing in holiness progressively, no one in this room is ever going to be perfect this side of heaven, but step by step, day by day, living every thought, every word, every action, and an idea of reflecting God is what we're called to do. So God commands it. Christ came here into this world to make us holy. It's evidence of your saving faith, and it's evidence of love. That as you are growing in holiness, you are growing in a greater level of love for one another. That God says that as you become more and more like him, you are starting to reflect him out to others. You are starting to love and to care for people in a way that you could never do on your own because you're reflecting God. You're growing in holiness. It's an evidence that you were going to do good towards other people. Holiness also produces comfort in life. I think it's the Heidelberg Catechism that says, what is the only comfort in this life that we are submissive to God, that we are leading and following after him, that we are putting ourselves in his place, that the only comfort that we are ever going to have in this life is to have holiness. And the last thing that Ryle said was this, that holiness prepares us for heaven. That God is looking to create within you somebody different so that you look more and more like him so that you are prepared for heaven. So why in the world am I talking about holiness after I just read about church discipline? The idea is this. If you read chapter 18 of Matthew, it begins with the fact, verses 1 through 11, it begins with, don't put a stumbling block in anybody's way, okay? So that we're in fellowship with one another. We're not supposed to be causing difficulties in relationship with one another. Then just prior to this passage I just read, he talked about the lost sheep. And that this, this sheep that has gone away and that you are pursuing the one that has gone away. Verses 12 through 14, that the shepherd is going after the sheep. And then 
immediately after that, don't put a stumbling block in each other's way. Go after those who have fallen away. And now it says, practice church discipline. Now, I know it didn't say that, but the passage says, if you see a brother who has sinned against you, what do you need to do? Four stages. Step number one. If you see a brother who has sinned against you, step number one is go privately to them. It's the one thing that we we do not do very often in our society, but what we do is we talk about other people. We fail to go to other people directly. The Bible's argument is this, that we need to, when we see a brother who is wayward, what we need to do is to deal with the thing internally in our own hearts and our lives. It requires that I am judging myself. I'm making sure that my motive is right before I go to this brother. That am I going to this brother for my benefit or am I going to this brother for the glory of God and the benefit of this brother? And now as I go to this brother, now I'm preparing my heart and I go directly to them. I don't talk about them. I talk to them. The passage is talking about this idea of when you see somebody who has sinned, the sin could be against you, as the passage says, or the sin could be in general. The reality is is that you see a brother who's caught in a sin. You who are spiritual, as Galatians 6 says, go and restore them in a spirit of gentleness. So you go judging yourself. You go open to forgiving this person in your heart. You go desiring to make sure your motive is right, and you go to reprove them, the Bible talks about, admonishing. In Colossians, it talks about this idea of teaching and admonishing with all wisdom. Some of us are very good at teaching. Some of us are good at admonishing, but you need to make sure you have both with wisdom. That as you go to this person, you teach them truth. You admonish means to correct them and to tell them that they're wrong, but you do it with all wisdom. And now you go directly to them and you say, if your brother has sinned against him, against you, go and tell him his fault just between you and him alone, private. Don't talk to anybody else about this. You don't have to come to the elders if you notice a brother has sinned against you in some way. You go directly to this person. And you sit down with them after you've had some time to personally deal with this in your own life. And you say, God, please help me as I am working with this person. And God, I want to have a vital relationship. And I think I see this thing that is wrong in their lives. And you go to them directly. Just between the two of you. You know how much... um, discipline happens like that that you never hear about? I don't know how many. I mean, I have, const- I have conversations often with people, and we're having these conversations about things that I see that are happening in their lives, and nobody else ever finds out about it because it's private. And as you go to this person directly, and then you go with them in love and grace and give them truth, and now their hearts open up and say, you know what, I didn't realize that I was doing that. And, and they repent, and they turn, and they say, I can't believe I was doing that. And they turn, and they re- re- repent, and they confess their sin, and they change their pattern of behavior, and it ends there. It's a great place to be. I need that desperately in my life. I need people that are going to come to me because I have my blind spots because of sin in my own life. I need people to come alongside and say, James, did you notice that you just said that? Or James, did you notice that you just did this particular thing? I need those people in my life because if I don't, I am going to be blind to my own sin and struggle. 
So if a believer sins, you go to him directly and privately and you reprove him. You expose the sin that is happening. If he repents, praise the Lord, you grant them forgiveness. You provide them some counsel to get right. You tell them how they can make it right if the sin was against you, how they can make it right with you and him. Or if there was sin involved somebody else, you would say, here are some things that you need to do. You are counseling them. You're teaching and admonishing with all wisdom. But the passage then goes on and says, if he listens to you, you have gained your what? You've gained your brother. But if he does not listen to you, and I should say this on that step number one, step number one is not just one time. Because I'm pretty hard-headed, maybe you are. Sometimes we need to have somebody come to us multiple times. And that step-by-step, conversation after conversation, you're going to them and you're saying that, you know what, I think a little bit more light is coming through, a little bit more humility is happening. I think we could take another step and another step and another step. But there's a point that you notice where somebody gets to a place where you can feel the wall going up and the rebellion there and they dig their heels in and that would move you to step number two but if he does not listen verse 16 take one or two along others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two to three witnesses because I got my own blind spots, and this is a biblical principle back from the Old Testament, but because I have my own blind spots, maybe I'm seeing something, and I'm not seeing something very clearly. And I need some other eyes to be on this situation. So, so going to this brother, and I went to this brother over and over and over, and it doesn't seem to be going anywhere. And now what I need to do is to consider bringing one or two along. Not as gossip, not as slandered, but to help us to try to figure this out. And I go into that situation knowing that maybe those one or two will say to me that, James, you're wrong. But in all likelihood, those one or two others are there just to to encourage our brother that we're dealing with here that, brother, you've admitted you're doing this. It goes against God's word because you're teaching, you're admonishing with all wisdom you are telling him that he is off track and you're concerned for him. And you do this because it's not just one person with another, it's now two or three with another trying to help this brother in Christ who is making a profession of faith who's living like the world. And so now what happens is, once again, when you go with step number two, you go with a heart's desire where my motive is right, I am judging myself, I'm self-disciplined, I am now going with a desire to reconcile with this brother, I love this brother, I don't want this to go any further. You take those two witnesses, so that every charge may be established by two to three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, though, so now I've gone to this brother, and this may be multiple conversations as well. You've gone to this brother with one or two others, and this brother has continued to dig his heels in. He's refusing to repent. He is refusing to change, and if he chooses not to repent, I am continually, I need to make sure my heart is right, that I'm not taking this personally. I need to see that all sin is vertical against God. This is not personal. 
that I am choosing to even release the vertical because I am actually more concerned about my brother right now who says he's a believer. I'm giving him the scriptures and he's rejecting the scriptures over and over again. So I need to make sure that my heart is right. I need to give him continual counsel. I need to give him an opportunity to return to fellowship. I say to him, brother, I am so concerned. And the other people that are with us do the same thing. And if this fellow believer continues to be unrepentant, even after you've gone to them individually, even after you've gone to them in this small group, you're obligated to bring them to us, to the leaders of the church. It is, it's our desire to help you to grow in holiness. And, and in doing that, that's not to try to punish you. This discipline is not a, a negative thing. It's restorative discipline. I want to see you grow to become more and more like Christ. And you may not be understanding. So, so now what happens is that this person is brought before a small group. Usually one or two elders, a smaller group of people would meet with this brother based on the information that has occurred. We've heard information from you. We've heard information about these conversations and you have chosen to reject it. So now we want to just sit down with you because when you are a brother and sister in Christ and you have pledged yourself as a covenant member of this body, you've pledged yourself to put yourself under our leadership. And we come to you because we are going to be held accountable before God for your soul. And so now we are talking to you and pleading with you. And those conversations may go on for a while as well. So if he refuses to listen to them, you bring him to the church. The church would start with your eldership. And maybe it would be a small group of elders that would meet with this person, which has happened. Or maybe it would be the larger group of elders if it continues to persist. And see, now, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. What in the world is he talking about there? This person who has made a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who says, I am a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I've submitted myself under God's word. I've submitted himself, myself to Christ's lordship in my life, but I am failing to follow him here, and I'm rejecting him over and over and over again. This person is not showing the signs that they are really believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are many people who make professions of faith because I prayed one prayer when I was two years old or ten years old, but have no lifestyle of holiness. I would say on the authority of God's word, there is a great likelihood this person's not a believer. And more than am I concerned about um, temporal things on earthly relationships, I'm concerned for their eternity. So as we get this opportunity to be able to speak God's word to this person as elders, and then maybe as the larger eldership, there may be a time. And I hope it never has to happen here. I hope it never has to. 
where this person who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is a covenant member of this body, who is failing to follow the individual counsel of others, failing to follow the counsel of their elders, failing to follow the counsel ultimately of God's word, they are showing themselves not to be a believer and they would be removed from some of the opportunities here, the privileges of membership. We would not give somebody who is doing that the opportunity to continue to to teach or to be a part of ministries who, who is blatantly refusing to submit themselves before God. It's a radical call for holiness. James, you can't do that. We live in a litigious society. You're going to get yourself sued. I have to stand before God. <laughs> I'm less concerned about a human, a human court. Now, if this believer, after all of that, repents, you welcome him back in the fellowship. If he doesn't, you let him go. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there's this um, very strong passage of a man who was uh, living in immorality. He was actually having sexual relations with his father's wife, his, in all likelihood his stepfather. And the church at Corinth, Paul said, had become so arrogant and so concerned with the world outside that they did nothing about it. You know what the church at Corinth had done? They had separated themselves from the world outside, but they allowed the world to become part of their church. And Paul says this is despicable, that the sin that this man was committing in an unconfessed, unrepented, continual way, even as he would, should have been um, uh, justified, he, even as he should have been, um, I lost my word, even as he should have been confronted about his sin, he wasn't. And Paul said he needed to be removed from the church. And he said, even more strongly, to give this person over to Satan. That this person is acting in a God-dishonoring way. And you hand them over to the world. I think what he meant by that is this, that you send him out of the church. He no longer has the ability to have the fellowship here in the same way as a believer, as a uh, covenant believer has. And that he is now acting more like the world, and the world is Satan's domain, and you're leaving him out of the fellowship of the believer, and you're sending him out into the world. And what Paul was hoping would occur is that that believer, as he goes out into the world, would recognize his sin and come to his senses. You remember the prodigal son? The prodigal son story was exactly like that. The prodigal son says, I want out of here, and he leaves here. He says, I want to go to the world. He goes to the world, and then he comes to his senses when he's in a pig trough. He says, what in the world am I doing? And that's what our hope is, that a believer who has strayed so far will wake up to the reality that this just doesn't make sense. So why do we practice church discipline or why should we? Because God commands it. What is church discipline? Church discipline is teaching believers in the Lord Jesus Christ how to become holy. And most of that is done individually. 
the majority of it's never going to be done with a corporation. But our goal is to see that God's name is glorified in this world. See, church discipline is primarily to vindicate God's honor. I was reading an article in World Magazine this week talking about churches that have leaders who have committed heinous acts of sexual sin among their believers, and because they're the superstar, the church did nothing about it. It's godless. And what does the world look at that type of church? The world looks at that type of church and says, what in the world are you doing? Your, your pastor is doing this with the members in the church, and you're doing nothing about it? See, we will never attract the world unless we're different from the world. See, I need you to consider being different individually. See, your life, the way you think, the way you speak, the way you act should be radically different. Our music is going to be better in heaven. Our preaching is going to be better in heaven. Our relationships are going to be better in heaven. The only reason we are here is to be holy, to reflect God's glory to a lost and a dying world. So we're doing this because of the glory of God and his holiness. You do this, church discipline, to restore purity among the believers. And as you have a body of believers, we want you as elders. I know as the elders sit down and pray with you, pray for you and meet to talk about this church, one of the key things that we want to see is that you would grow in Christ-likeness in your life. It's our passion in our lives to see that happen. So we want to see sin hindered in your life and growing in greater levels of purity in your life. We want the watching world to look at the chapel at Warren Valley and see something distinctive in the fact that that building is not just a bunch of cars sitting out in a parking lot on Sunday morning, but those people are different, different in life. Church discipline looks at the offender and says, I love you, brother. I am concerned for you. I want to see you grow in Christ-likeness. That's what church discipline does. Church discipline is only done to those that are professing believers. There may be some here who have never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Not going to practice church discipline with you. You've never, you, you're not in the faith. I'm not going to practice church discipline with the guy that pumped my gas down down the street. I'm going to try to evangelize that person. I'm going to try to reflect and demonstrate and proclaim the gospel to that person. We're not going to discipline the world. We're going to discipline those that are in the church. It's only for professing believers, and it's only a believer that is associated with our church. Somebody that has pledged himself to be a member of this church. You put yourself under the discipline, under the, the um, leadership of this uh, leadership staff, of the eldership staff, and we've associate, you've associated with this church. If you're not a member of this church, we're not going to discipline you. I, I should say one point to this. One of the concerns I have today is that people will leave one church because they are now being told something that they don't like about something that's happening in their lives. And that maybe the leaders have come alongside them to say that I'm really concerned about this brother or sister. And what do you do? You pick up and you move to another church. But you don't become a member of that church. You don't plant deeply in that church. 
And then you have another problem that happens in another church, and they see something happening in your lives, and they're saying, brother or sister, I'm seeing this concern, and then what do you do? You pick up and you move to another place. And what happens is you can't grow in the faith that way. So I would encourage you that if you call this your place, your home, I encourage you to make this your home by covenanting with us. So you must be a professing believer to require church discipline. You must be associated with this church. You must be defiantly disobedient to God's word. So what kind of sins are, are we talking about? All of us are sinners. We're not talking about everybody. If, we're, if it's just sin, everybody here could be disciplined. And I guess we should be disciplined on some level of individual and mutual care. But we're talking about this level of church discipline if you have a very clear violation of God's law in your life and you've been confronted about this over and over again, that is a form of church discipline. If you're teaching heresy or teaching something that is godless in this church and we've, we've tried to help you and disciple you and grow you and you continue to move down that path, that is open for potential church discipline. If you're creating divisiveness in the church, if, you, if you're a slanderer or if you're a gossip and you're creating this divisiveness and trying to pit camps within this church, the elders are called to protect this body of believers. If you have disorderly conduct in your life or if you're having unresolved relational sins in your life, that is where we're called to come alongside you and help. It's not an exhaustive list but it is habitual, it's overt, and it's unrepented. And those are the key elements. So how do we close this? Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Second Corinthians chapter 7. verses 8 through 11. Paul had apparently written an earlier letter to the Corinthians, and he had talked about some struggles that he had seen in their lives. And it may have been the situation that was talked about in 1 Corinthians 5, but he is talking about the fact that he wrote them a letter, verse 8, and it made you grieve with my letter. Paul said, I do not regret though I did regret it. For I see the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. I will tell you that any time you go to a place of disciplining somebody, it is going to produce some grief in you. Because you're seeing that you're, you have to deal with something in a brother or sister, and that is not easy to deal with. And Paul says that it, was, it broke my heart to do this. And he says in verse 9, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into what? repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. That, that you know, you had a place where you were off track and we, we confronted you teaching, admonishing with all wisdom, and it broke your heart and you humbled yourself and it grieved you, but it was grieving you into repenting and changing. 
And then Paul talked about this in verses 10 and 11. He talked about the difference between godly grief and worldly grief. Just look at some of these principles here. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. The last thing I want to see is that somebody has this sorrow externally, but their heart has not been changed because they're on a broad path to destruction and I'm concerned about their souls. What, what Paul is saying is, I have seen a grief that has happened within you that is a telltale sign that you are in Christ. Verse 11, he says, For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. I want you to think about that idea of earnestness. It's, it was one of the first fruit of a godly grief. Earnestness is simply a means of eagerly and aggressively pursuing righteousness in your life. It's a total change of attitude towards your sin. That as you've confronted this believer, you say, he says, wait a minute, what I was doing is wrong. He's totally changed. And his eagerness now is to do the right thing, the godly thing, the biblical thing. But he says, not only the eagerness this godly grief has produced in you, but, I'm sorry, earnestness that this godly grief has produced in you, what eagerness to clear your name. Eagerness to clear your name. What do we tend to do with our sin? We tend to cover it up. Proverbs 28, 13 says, he who conceals his sin will not prosper, but he who confesses it and forsakes it finds mercy. This person now has gotten to a place he no longer desires to hide his sin. He wants to be washed clean of his sin. He wants to stop hiding his sin any longer, and he wants to go into a life that is going to be cleansed by God. Radically changed. He says, not only earnestness and eagerness, he says, what indignation. He has now gotten to a place where he is hating the very thing that he is being confronted about. See, what we do when we're off course is that we love our sin, we desire our sin, we're passionate for our sin until we wake up. Like the prodigal in the pigsty, he wakes up and realizes, what in the world am I doing? Where am I going? And the indignation now is this hatred for sin. I hated the sin because it hinders my relationship with God and it's hindered my relationship with my brother here. What indignation? What fear? I'm talking about reverence for God. That if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, truly a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, when Christ died on a cross 2,000 years ago, he took all of God's anger and wrath upon himself for your sin. If you're truly a believer... You will never have to stand under the wrath of God ever again. You are free from condemnation if you're a believer. If you're not, you're under the wrath of God until you trust in the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This godly person recognizes that I'm no longer under God's father, uh, under his judicial wrath, but I am under his fatherly wrath, that God hates it. Just like those fathers, the father and mother that wasn't disciplining their children in the airport, this father, and this is a real father that loves you and will discipline you. What fear that I want to reverence you, God. I want to honor you. I want to reflect you. And then he says, what longing. You know, oftentimes I have a longing for my sin. The person that has changed now has an internal desire for God. I want fellowship with you, God. I have a longing for you. I can't help but want to be with you. What zeal. It's one of the key things that are lacking in churches today. It's a driving passion to love Christ. 
above all things? Do you have a driving passion to love Christ, to love him, to serve him, to live for him? And then what punishment? I'm going to avenge the wrong I've done to you. I'm going to do everything that I can do to make it right. See, that's godly change. I can't tell you how many times I've been privileged of watching somebody get confronted with sin. The hearts are radically changed. They melt, and then they recognize, what in the world have I done? That's not just my job, or Doug's job, or Tim's job, or Steve, or Dave, or Victor's job. It's your job. It's your job to come along each other as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and to love them enough that you're going to tell them, I'm concerned with you. I'm concerned for you. I think you're off course. You are biblically obligated to discipline yourself. Check yourself. Matthew 7 says, check your own heart and your motive before you go to them. But you're biblically obligated to teach, to admonish, and do it with all wisdom. You're biblically obligated, as Jesus did in John 1.14. He dwelt with people. He was gracious with people. He spoke truth to people. That's what we're called to do as believers. We cannot have a vital relationship unless we do that. There is not one of us that watch a kid run across Route 57 that we would not go out there and try to protect them from getting hit or harmed. There's not one of us in this room that wouldn't do that. Why is it that we can allow a brother or sister in Christ to go into sin that will destroy them much worse than a car on Route 57? So I encourage you, because we believe in a place of vital relationships, I encourage you to love each other. I encourage you to be truthful with one another. I encourage you to reflect the glory of God to one another. So Father, I thank you for your um, kind favor and graces in our lives. Father, this is not an easy topic. Nobody in here wants to be confronted. I have brothers and sisters in this room that have confronted me about areas in my life, and I need it. Father, I pray that you would produce within us this passionate desire to look different. Father, remind us that we are here to reflect your holiness. Remind us that that's really the only reason we're here. Help us to live quorum Deo before your face, under your authority and for your glory. Father, I pray that you would help us to, to love one another enough to be truthful with one another. Father, help us to first start with disciplining ourselves, but then help us to move to mutual discipline of one another. And I pray that we'll never have to get to a place where there will be a corporate discipline here in this church. But Father, help us to grow in the likeness of your Son by the Spirit's power to reflect you to a world that's out there. Lord, this church must be different in order to attract a world that's different from us. Help us to do that today. And Father, if there's anyone here who has never trusted in your Son, maybe has made professions of faith for years, but there has been no evidence of life, I pray that they would come down front, meet with one of the pastors or elders, Father, um, 
talk with us to hear how they can have faith in your son. And I pray that you're going to be glorified in all we do in Jesus' name. Amen.